UX Podcast Episode 194. You're listening to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, James Roy Lawson and Pat Axbom. With listeners in 177 countries, from New Zealand to Cambodia. Now, Sid Harrell is a user research expert who believes you can answer any question as long as you are fearless and creative about methods. She has, among many things, worked as the VP of Research for San Francisco-based UX design firm Bolt Peters, where she helped clients such as Sony and Volkswagen conduct remote research and real-time usability studies. Currently, she's service design lead at Judicial Council of California. We caught up with Sid at um, UXLX and received lots of useful tips and ideas about how to prepare and conduct user research, how to be fearless, how, um, how to get permission, how to pack your bag so you're ready to go out and do research at a moment's notice. Rich UX research on the fly. What, so it's rich, which to me means immersive, but it's also fast. Yes. So how does that work? <laughs> Mostly it works by getting to the participant in their mm. actual context of use. Mm. Um, and uh, it very much comes from my heritage at Bolt Peters. Um, back from tw- 2006 to 2012, I was head of research there, and that was a firm that uh, sort of said, we'll answer any research question, and we're not afraid of any technical hurdles. And so we ended up getting asked to do a lot of things like um, go and record drivers in their cars in 2008 and see how they are using mobile devices oh, okay. um, while they're driving. <laughs> Yeah. Could you could you ah. see the impact it made as well? Yes. Oh, oh interesting. We, we did a photo set for that study. Yeah. Uh, we I think we did it on Flickr at the time. Yeah. And uh, two of the categories we had were one hand and no hands oh. on the wheel, um, which was, and you may remember, you know, it was just the beginning of smartphones, so not mm. everybody had one. Um, you had people who had um, their sling box mm. in the car, or they had a PDA. If you, yep, well, yeah, had yeah. One. oh yeah, <laughs> they had a PDA and a phone yeah. and a music player. Um, of course, yeah, separate MP3 players. Yeah. yeah, and you know what we had to do in order to capture that was to send two researchers along, one to sit in the back seat with a, a webcam and a laptop and stream to the team, which actually wasn't in the U.S. The client team. Wow. Um, and then somebody to sit in the front seat and interview the driver. Obviously, in a lightweight way. So, so you were, you're live streaming um, or uh, user interview yes. in a moving vehicle mm. while they're using yes. mobile devices. <laughs> My God. <laughs> so so um, all of that taught me to be pretty fearless about, um, you know, figuring out what it takes to go yeah. and record data in a particular way. And I, I think um, a lot of what people need is just permission mm-hmm. to be yes. fearless about that. So what I try and teach is um, there are certain really key things, like you need to be comfortable intercepting people. You can figure out a place where the right users might be, whether it's a conference like this or Mm. at the local restaurant or police station maybe in some cases. Um, You need to know how to approach people. And so that is is something that we practice in the workshop. Um, there are ways to make data collection a lot easier on yourself. Mm-hmm. 
So that's another piece, sort of having that all set up. Um, having your kit all together so that you can go out on a moment's notice. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, so there's a certain amount of preparation, but I always feel like with research you kind of get the right people or you go home. And so if you have the right person who cares about the task, especially if they care about the task in that moment, like that's the magic. And so you should do whatever to get there. And then, we're, you know, if your video is a tiny bit blurry or, you know, you lose a little bit of the transcript, your team will have still had the experience of being in that space with the person and seeing the moment. So that's kind of why I believe it can be rich and on the fly at the it's same time. It's rich because it's hugely relevant. Because it's real, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's real in the right context. So, I mean, what would go into, you mentioned you have to have your kit ready. <laughs> so what would go into a kit? Um, well, what do you need to do research, right? S uh, so you need, uh, you need to present a prompt, mm. but that can just be your voice or that can be a paper prototype mm. that's in a folder. I have pictures in the slides for the workshop mm. um, of actually that same messenger bag that I brought here packed for a full day of research. So two clipboards mm. go next to your laptop in the laptop slot, right? And mm. one of them has the consent forms and one of them has the score sheets that you're going to record your data on. You have the script probably in your head. You very carefully have made sure that you look legitimate mm. by bringing along business cards or sometimes you just make stickers, put them on your clipboard that says who you are and why it's okay to talk to you basically. Oh, so do you, do you put them on the, on the, on the, I put them on person mm. facing side clipboard of the clipboard or wh whatever way, you know, to show yeah. I'm not fundraising and I'm yeah. not scamming. I'm not trying to take your wallet. Yeah. Um, usually for this kind of research, you need to offer an incentive. So like the envelope with the incentive is another place to put your sticker. I mean, do you, do you make use of things like, um, I mean, we've got conference lanterns on today. Would you, we do. Is that the kind of thing you would maybe do to make it a little bit more official? Depend on the context. Yeah. Um, but I would say business cards more often because something like Moo cards, I checked out the European pricing, for example, and it was like, you know, 15 euros 35 for a mm -hmm. pack of 50 mm -hmm. little cards, which can even be specific to your study. Yeah. So it's a really small piece of budget to just create some identity that, mm. that shows people that you're invested. When we used to do Twitter recruiting, um, I mean, I still do some Twitter recruiting, you always change your profile to do the same thing, basically, to sort of, you know, if somebody gets a tweet from you saying, hey, I saw you, you know, tweeting about cooking, would you like to participate in a research study? Mm -hmm. If they're interested, they're going to go look at your profile. And if your profile says, I'm a user researcher with this company and I'm currently studying kitchen design, that's oh. going to be a confirming factor yeah, in whether it's... Right, yeah, they yeah, gain you know, trust straight away. It gives them a yeah. way to say yes. So so some of those things go in the kit as well as the mm. actual equipment. Um, unsurprisingly, more chargers than you <laughs> might think you need. Um, a way to record whatever kind of recording you're going to do these days, that can often be your phone. Um, if you're doing a device study and you're going to be indoors, then having chargers for the devices you anticipate that your participants might have, especially if they're out of, you know, participant mm. shows up with 3% battery. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to yeah. rob them of their last 3%. You don't yeah. want to rob them of their last 3%. You don't want them to run out. Yeah. Um, uh, and then there's, a, you know, there's a bunch of things that go in the kit that are self-care, like, 
you always need a snack and water. And tea bags. You <laughs> must have tea bags. Oh, tea bags. Okay. Yeah, I, have, I, should I, add those I always have a bag <laughs> of tea bags. I mind. always have um, little uh, wrist gloves because I get cold. Oh, wow. I can just throw those on because I know I need that. I love this. This is the go bag for emergencies. When you right. It, it, <laughs> it is effectively yeah. a research go bag. Yeah. yeah. Research handbag. <laughs> <laughs> or man bag, depending on which way you are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not a gendered mm. thing, especially. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> So now I'm going to encourage uh, listeners to actually take pictures of their research go bags and send to us. That I would, would be, love to see really that. Cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we actually play a Monopoly game in the workshop. So everyone, every table gets mm-hmm. get out of jail free cards that have different elements you might have in your kit. And then I throw a bunch of little emergencies at them and mm-hmm. they have to raise their hand if they have mm-hmm. something that would solve it. Oh right, yeah. So you, yeah, so they've got you've they've thought of their kit and what they might have in their kit. And then yeah, you throw we things do a checklist, and, and I mm. show them uh, the pictures of all the things that I have in mind usually for a full day of research. And you know, some of it is um, uh, you go to the cafe and a different person is working there that doesn't know that you were given approval yesterday, and so they want to throw you out. Oh yeah, you have the number of the person you talked to yesterday. Oh, so you do, you do normally contact, so if you are going to work, do research from the, the cafe or a Starbucks or whatever, you actually talk to them in advance? Depends what you're doing. If you're just sitting at a table talking to people, maybe not. Mm. But, um, but if it's in a store, not a cafe, absolutely. Mm. Um, if you want to, say, shadow people around a store. Mm. Um, and if a recording, maybe. Putting a recording device on the table, maybe yeah. some customers will have a problem with that. Yeah. Um, well, in a store, typically, we'll... Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, stores are often, you know, franchises controlled by headquarters. And so if they haven't heard from up the chain that you're going to be there and it's okay, then they don't know what you're doing with the research. Mm-hmm. And also if you're offering people money in their store, it gets into areas where you might be impacting the experience their customers mm-hmm. are having. Yeah. And they might not even realize, oh, they, you might be working for a competitor. Mm. Right. I mean, this, this yeah, unless, well, they kind of <laughs> unless they know that you're not. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, just having some of those permission elements to exactly bring along and show as well. And setting that up, you know, if you're an in-house researcher with a company like that, then you have those channels and you have a little extra time to, you know, get a blanket permission to go to the local store and do research or yeah. whatever it might be. But do you have any kind of... Um, safe places that you would maybe, if you had to do some research and you hadn't sorted out permission in advance, are there any kind of types of places that you would then head for? Public libraries are great, although, you know, you have to find a room where talking is okay. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, that's a space where generally anyone is allowed to come in, um, and uh, it's safe, yeah, it feels yeah. comfortable to most people. Mm. So sometimes... If you can book a room at public libraries, which often isn't hard, and then recruit outside the library mm. if it's in a busy area and ask people to step inside with you and mm. talk about, um, we did one about ballots uh, in Oakland at one point, because mm. they were looking at changing to, um, to a ranked choice voting system instead of the vote for one system. Right, okay. You mentioned that the most important part is that the, the interviewees are relevant Yes. So, I mean, how do you judge that? Do you actually, is there a way of terminating or realize that this is not going anywhere or just, do you shift focus or is that based on? Um, do you sh- yes, you absolutely shift focus. Okay. So, I mean, it, I think one of, the, one of the things that senior researchers develop is a little bit of a spidey sense, if you want to <laughs> call it mm-hmm. that, where 
you f realize that you're not getting anything. Mm. And that's often for a lot of researchers that shows up as I'm bored um, because uh, researchers typically are excited to talk to humans. Mm. And so if a human conversation is losing their attention, something's not working. You're not talking about something real. And I think that's one of the other things that I give researchers permission to do in my workshops and otherwise is break the script. You know, you have five questions you want to get answered, mm. but if the person is, you know, not really invested in the area that you're talking about, what's the point? Mm. Like, figure out what's actually going on and then maybe loop back to the questions. Exactly. And sometimes you need to get personal to do that. Right, yeah, and that's something you would you, you would read off them during the yeah. initial part of talking to them, I guess, to yeah. work out whether it's okay to get more personal. Whether it right, and, and getting personal just meaning, you know, trying to find a place where this actually showed up for them mm. um, or a person that they care about mm. that this actually, you know, was involved in this. Um, there's an example from an old study about planning vacations where we just couldn't get a participant going and uh, the person actually conducting the interview said, well, finally, well, who goes on these vacations? And then the participant opened up talking about their family and the difficulties of, you know, balancing everybody's desires for what they would do and managing conflicts between different people who were going. Mm. And all of that actually had a lot of relevance to how they actually did the planning and what the order of their steps were. And so we just had to collect it in a little bit less explicit way, but that was the connection in for them. Right. And I guess, you know, the other big piece that we spend a lot of time on in the workshop is uh, scripting for emergent tasks. So rather than planning to go and say, okay, I would like you to, uh, you know, map a path to, to Chinatown from here, you would say, tell me about where you're going next. How would you go about figuring out how to get there so that you are connecting that to, again, to the actual real yeah task that they have because people get um, they get into a, what I call a puzzle solving mode if you give them something that isn't part of their life so mm -hmm. okay map a path to Chinatown that's just a completely different yeah. mode from look I need to mm. get to city center and I only yeah. have 10 minutes before I know I need to leave and also they'll have I mean, in a natural, more natural situation with navigation, then you, you've got a final goal. You, you're not, you're not just taking yourself to that place. You're actually going there for to a reason. To do something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you feed them, we just kind of oh, find a route mm. to the Chinatown. There's no, there's no intrinsic motivation. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, this is interesting because I mean that's sort of where a lot of the people who misunderstand research go wrong. You think that you, you so what are you doing? You're going out and asking questions. No, I'm not really. I'm just t trying to find out how people behave right. in certain scenarios. And simulating mm -hmm. enough, of the, the, uh, enough of the real world so you, you actually elicit, elicit a response that is close enough to the real situation. Right, so you try to get as close to mm -hmm. that as you can. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, you know, the other misconception is that people think if the participants don't do the exact same thing, so if they don't all go to Chinatown, I won't mm -hmm. be able to synthesize the results and right. draw inferences. But if you recast what you need as I need every participant to plan a trip to somewhere that mm. they need to go, mm. you actually then do have a pretty good basis to draw inferences. Mm. So 
Speaking of synthesis, then, uh, so do you have a way of speeding that up as well? Like, <laughs> is there guerrilla synthesis for understanding research? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, a lot of what you can do in the field is set yourself up to do good synthesis. Mm -hmm. So I, one of the other things that we work through is what do you need to do after each session to make sure that you have still your human connection to that session and are able to pull out um, the things that you learned from it. So for me, it's kind of write a one-sentence description of the person. So if I had done a session with you, it'd be like, you know, medium-sized blonde man with glasses wearing a cool t-shirt. That would be enough to sort of remember who that was, or it's, you know, a tall, dark-skinned woman with a four-year-old by the hand, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, or something particular that you remember about them. And then if you write down specifically the biggest surprise from the session, mm. That's usually the moment that had the biggest intellectual and emotional connection for the researcher, and that's really the, the core capacity that the researcher is working with is their human intellectual and emotional connection. So you write that down, and then you jot down two or three other things. You've got like a little half-page summary, um, and you can make a little score sheet for the core questions that you need to get answered, even if you're not going to ask them in the same words to everyone. So, you know, I need to know whether this person is a a constant phone checker or a episodic phone checker. And you just mark a little X on a line that you've drawn. Mm. So you get those pieces down. And if you combine that with kind of your quick little download afterwards, you're in a good position then mm. to get into synthesis because you can post those up for everybody. And it's like, okay, does everybody remember the nice blonde man with the glasses who said, you know, the surprising thing about his kitchen? Um, what did people remember from that session? Mm. And then you can draw things together based on you yeah. know, each of the things that happened. So exactly. you basically, you, you, you're, you're giving yourself the ability to create uh, mental hooks to hang the, the research session on so that you can easier recall it when you come yes. back. Yes. And you know, if you, uh, you sometimes do these forms of guerrilla recruiting for longer sessions, and then you have to do longer and more in-depth synthesis. If you have an hour recording with someone, you're yeah. not going to do a quick half-day synthesis session with three people and move on. Exactly. But it's possible to do for quick stuff. So I, I came across a situation uh, recently where a client had a look at the data uh, that a researcher had drawn conclusions from and they realized, well, we would have probably have drawn different conclusions from that. Oh, interesting. Have you come across something? Would you, I mean, is that something you would recommend that actually you would have separate groups looking at the data and see if they come to the same conclusions? <laughs> I'd probably start with everyone together and hope that those perspectives would emerge. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like to separate the research team from mm. the product owners or oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm for synthesis, mm. but sometimes mm. it happens. Mm. One of the problems I've been trying to work out is, um, you know, as we work in sort of civic spaces in the US, we really need to have multilingual research teams. And what is the right way to synthesize across data that's been collected in different mm. languages? So if we had a whole team do Spanish interviews and a whole team do English interviews, my hypothesis right now uh, yeah. is that the Spanish team should do Spanish language synthesis because they have a you know there's a lot of richness in yeah. the language and that that initial synthesis should be done in mm. the same language that the data was collected mm. in and the English team should do English and then they should come together and I don't know what that session looks like but I'm mm. 
very interested in getting us better at doing that. Yeah. That's so true. There's so much going on in language and culture connected to that. That's yeah, I, I was thinking about that. That when you've, when you've got language difference there, then it becomes quite difficult straight away to know, okay, um, are, there, are there cultural differences um, connected to the language differences that are driving some of the, 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 the findings that we can see in the research? Mm-hmm. Or is it maybe the, the, the biases of the two separate research teams <laughs> that have been fed into the, uh, the, the synthesis and analysis? I can, I can imagine it, it, it can be quite tricky then to... Yeah, the right it's a whole other level yeah. of writing down assumptions, right? Yeah, because exactly. it's, it's deep ones that you wouldn't mm. yeah. know. So I think it, it, it would take very open people. Um, I'm just thinking about, you know, if I was, if I was working with a Spanish language mm. team or if I was a head of research and I had teams working mm. in both languages, how would I make sure there wasn't mm. a power dynamic because English is a dominant language? And exactly. I haven't put any of this into practice, yeah. but it's it's mm. one of my big uh, interests at the moment. Yeah, it's absolutely. And you always have to be aware of those issues, and I think the more senior you are, you think about those things, and actually express them as part of. This is what we think. This is the thing about <laughs> design synthesis as well. I mean, you really are only formulating a new hypothesis. It's not like you have the answers <laughs> because people say, "Oh, so now we did the research and we got these answers, so, so let's go ahead with this." You only have a new hypothesis, really. Yeah, yeah and then right. you really still have to go iterate and go on with it. I was wondering, uh, thinking back to, to one of the things you said at the start about um, the workshop that you did, um, you, you said it's important for people to have um, a way of approaching. So if you're going out and finding people like here and now, um, what are some of the kind of techniques that you could work on? Because I'm, I'm actually quite terrible at like, kind of feeling comfortable at just grabbing people in the street. <laughs> it's one of the things that I'm, I'm not good at. Right. Um, so, so for me, it would be really useful to have some pointers. Right. Well, for what it's worth, a lot of researchers are quite introverted. Mm. It's, uh, I, th- I would say that the, you know, probably 60, 65% of people in the research posi- profession don't, sorry, you'll edit that right, <laughs> or something. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of researchers are introverted and don't find that comfortable. Mm. And so um, one of the things we do is practice it. Um, and I know, you know, it's, it's kind of okay as a not too large woman, because I'm not physically intimidating, I can walk up to just about anybody. Mm. Um, I have friends who are researchers who you know, have a different body configuration or different skin color, which makes a big difference in America and how people respond to them, who have really, really refined practices of how they set their physical posture when they're doing this. Oh, wow. Which I haven't had to do yeah. as much. Um, but I find... So number one, you've got to be okay with no. So if you get no as an answer, say mm. thank you, move on, and just figure a lot of people will say no, mm. and it's not personal. I think that that mm. takes the temperature down for a lot of people. Like, yeah, you're going to get a lot of no's. Um, and then the trick is to convey as many elements of a real recruiting appeal as you can. So the, the elements of a recruiting appeal, what specifically are you asking for? So how much of someone's time? is the really key element. Are you offering some kind of incentive? Who the heck are you and why is it okay for you to do this? (laughs) Um, And there's some others, but if you can get those three into a quick sentence. So if I saw you walking down the street and I said, hi, how are you? Uh, I'm doing research today with people who've done kitchen remodels recently. Would you happen to have 20 minutes? And uh, I have a 20 euro 
fill in this envelope for you if you can spend that time with me. Right. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've you've uh, you've given all the the information I need to, uh, theoretically to make a quick decision. There, you've primed me with that. Right. I give you enough to say yes if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if I if and and then that first approach just has to be friendly. Yeah. And a few keywords in there to, I mean, the kitchen's a crucial word to make me understand, well, to, to see whether I'm, it's going to bubble up a response from me. Right. Because you're going to want people who are right. you know, And I probably wouldn't recruit motivated. for a kitchen study on the street, no. honestly, <laughs> but we were talking about that earlier. So. <laughs> yeah, today it'd probably work, mm. given, <laughs> given the conversation. Get Bruno, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was hugely interesting, what you said about how you, based on your body type even, how you approach people. Um, is that it's something you as a team would practice? And as a yeah, I mean, it's actually about, harder for yeah. men. Yeah. Um, you know, because mm -hmm. people know that uh, men are more likely to hurt them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if a woman walks up mm -hmm. to you on the street, it's not mm -hmm. an uncomfortable situation, mm -hmm. especially if you are a woman. Mm -hmm. But if a man walks up to you, there's an instant like, and so especially big men have mm. to be really careful about it. Right. So, so that would be something you'd have, have to practice. Because if I went out and tried and, and realized this is not working, it may not be because people are want to say no because they don't want to do the research. It's because of the way I approach them. Mm. Oh. So that's really yeah. important. Uh, just thinking about that, I mean, do you, how do you deal with the fact that what we're talking about now is how you need to, you have to acknowledge and make use of um, biases that exist in society <laughs> and some of those biases are things that are going to make you feel uncomfortable like you know, there's people out there are racists right so you mentioned being a black yeah. researcher um i mean you you sp you have to make you have to make use of that effectively in your recruiting as well as acknowledge it see what i mean it's yeah right that I, I am sort of privileged as a researcher by being a a white medium-sized mm -hmm. woman mm -hmm. right who, so it is It is quite easy for me, or if you've ever talked with Liz Goodman, who's an American researcher, she talks about this too. She's smaller than me. And she's mm. like, no one is intimidated by me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, lots of men, lots of men researchers do it successfully. Right. And this, uh, the particular researcher I was thinking of when I said that has just an incredible practice of rec um, putting people at ease. And, you know, he's shown mm. me the body postures that he uses and so forth when he's sitting opposite someone and the way that he sort of curls himself and makes sure he's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Open palms. Yeah. <laughs> I studied coaching, so body posture was right. uh, really important there. Yeah, I, just, I, just, I just unfolded yeah. my arms because yeah. I realized yeah. I was <laughs> sat yeah. like this, which exactly. is very close to right. Well, like that. And then, that, you know, that's part of the point of yeah. having the stickers and mm. the who you are. Yes. Um, mm. So, mm. you know, okay, this person seems friendly, mm. I'm looking at them visually, mm. oh, it looks like they're actually from whatever company. Mm. <laughs> maybe they give you that minute to listen. Maybe they're mm. interested, maybe they're not, but. Mm. Now I'm interested in doing research around how you do that research approach <laughs> to people. So actually try out different ways of right. finding out how you, how you approach them and they don't, don't feel uncomfortable. And the other thing, it does have to fit mm. you. Yeah. So if you, if yeah. you, you know, are doing something that's inauthentic, mm. then the research interaction isn't gonna be authentic. Very good point. Yeah, it's gonna feel yeah. stilted from the very from mm. first yeah. words. Yeah. Right. That's important to think about. Mm. But what you said about yeah, so we are naturally curious as researchers. Yes. And what tends to happen you need to form a new habit, but what people always forget, but what you discover once you take the time to do research is those nuggets of information, they come whatever little research you do, you get it and that's so satisfying. And that's what encourages you to do more. So 
just getting out there and starting will encourage you to do lots more research, I think. Yeah, that's my philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do some, mm. do it with real users. That's, that's you know, uh, there are some instances where it isn't possible, but if you're doing it with the company across the hall, you're probably not getting data that makes sense unless you're looking at just the most basic interface element exactly. success or something. Mm. This has been hugely useful to me, Sid. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for sitting down with us. So listening back to this interview with Sid, I almost got this this prepper feeling, maybe because of the of the go bag, because that's how it started. But also, I mean, every step of the way, you have to be prepared for the next step and you have to anticipate what work do I have to do next and how can I make that work easier by preparing and making sure that Yes, I have, like you said, some sort of hook for remembering the person that we talked to that I, I, I got something out of and uh, preparing how I dress so I gain the trust of other people. There's so many details that she talked about that I absolutely loved. And it was just writing down that checklist, uh, which you can easily do just by listening to this interview. You realize that oh, if I plan every step of the way, I'm obviously going to work in a better yeah, way. Plan it um, and also mm -hmm. practice it. Because this kind yeah. of stuff, it, you don't you don't become good at it just by reading a book mm -hmm. or by listening to a podcast. It's one of those yeah. things where you really have to go out there and 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 try it and do it a few times and yeah. and allow yourself the the time yeah. and the space to to for it to develop for it to to be better. But mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, I was listening back to this. Um, I got reminded about how inspired I was directly after we interviewed um, Sid, and and I came home. And and I straight away um, I made a little template to help me when I go out because normally I just have I have a clipboard and A4 sheets of paper and I actually have blank sheets of paper normally, um, but I thought no I'm going to make a little template so I made one inspired by what she advised us with um, um, that kind of biggest surprise because hmm. just writing down that biggest surprise um, felt that's a good thing that can really improve it so I I I made space for a sentence to write. Um, who you were observing or talking to, and then the sentence about your biggest surprise. Um, and that, I've used it twice now, this little template as a test, and it's so good to be, and quick, to go back and be able to read that sentence, which captures mm. how I felt at the moment at the end of the interview. Yeah. What was important to me um, at the end of the interview. That's so perfect. Yeah, and it's been excellent to be able to share that so, with others. Yeah, such an easy way also to get excited about it when you go back. Also, so you don't start with just loads and loads of texts and notes, but you start with that, oh yeah, the trigger. That was the thing. That was what I thought was really interesting. Exactly, because you yeah. can get lost in, in mm. when you've got loads of notes, you can get lost in the mm. detail. So you, you mm. have to plow through it to find mm. that one thing that was, oh yeah, that was really, really mm. relevant, or that was excellent. Um so so no, um, she's she's really inspired me to kind of you know be more prepared, be a prepper, mm. <laughs> a user research prepper. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and that's all about thinking about that you as a person, of course, you're bringing so much stuff to the table. You're bringing your bias and you're bringing all this stuff. So, I'm, even the point she made about self care, I, I I could spend lots of time just talking about self care. Bring a pack a snack in your go bag. Because one of the things that I talk about when I talk about ethics is that you as a person, if you're unhealthy, if you're exhausted or tired or not feeling well, you're going to make poor decisions. You're going to 
draw the wrong conclusions. So just self-care. It's it's just it's so obvious, but you don't think about it. It is. I mean, I, to be honest, the, the the snack bar. I I always have a snack bar. I mean, you know this because we've traveled yes. together. Um, I always have um, a snack, some kind of snack bar in my uh, my rucksack, mm-hmm. and and I learned that. Um, probably 15 years ago when I started doing day trips to, to Oslo from Stockholm and, and they were, they were really hard work mm. and it, um, I died by three o'clock in the afternoon, just as we were finishing off. I was, I, you know, there was a buzzing noise, the world was spinning and I was so hungry because mm. we, we hadn't eaten properly, been up early, f- taken flights, gone to another city, mm. listened to people, talked, observed people all day and my, my head was blown. So yeah. uh, it became really important to make sure I had, yeah, it's a fruit you couldn't always take because fruit you're not meant to take on some flights. And there was mm. a period there where you really couldn't. So it's mm. always had like a, a sealed bar of something in my um, my rucksack. Yeah. And the other point that I loved, and of course that we talked about in the, in the interview, is, but just this aspect of being intimidating to other people. Uh, of course, maybe especially important for the, for the people, the likes of you and me, uh, who can be intimidating uh, just by being a white man, <laughs> old grumpy old man, <laughs> uh, approaching people. But just that awareness. I think that's the important thing. As long as you're aware that people can re- react to you, respond to you in different ways, will make you more open to changing your behavior to to suit their responses. Yeah. That 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 mm. course that mm. core skill of of, yeah. of empathy again. Links related to this episode are on uxpodcast.com, and we also send them out as part of our backstage email. So sign up at uxpodcast.com/backstage. And um, please subscribe to the show if you don't already. There are some great shows in our back catalogue. I think I've said that before. <laughs> A good one to listen to after this would be episode 129, Beyond User Research, with Lou Rosenfeld. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Hammond. Hammond who? Hammond eggs. <laughs> you see, just when you really thought they couldn't get any worse, <laughs> they just keep on delivering. <laughs>